Chapters thirty seven through thirty nine of the Right Away by Gilbert Parker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter thirty seven. The challenge of Paulette Dubois. Monsieur, Monsieur, came the voice from inside the house, querulously and anxiously. Charlie entered the notary's bedroom. Monsieur, said the notary excitedly, she is here. Paulette is here. My wife is asleep, thank God. But old Sophie has just told me that the woman wants to see me. Ah, heaven above, what shall I do? Will you leave it to me? Yes, yes, monsieur. You will do exactly as I say? Ah, most sure. Very well, keep still. I will see her first. Trust to me. He turned and left the room. Charlie found the woman in the notary's office, which, while partly detached from the house, did duty as sitting-room and library. When Charlie entered the room was only lighted by two candles, and Paulette's face was hidden by a veil, but Charlie observed the tremulousness of the figure and the nervous decision of manner. He had seen her before several times, and he had always noticed the air, half bravado, half shrinking, marking her walk and movements, as though two emotions were fighting in her. She was now dressed in black save for one bright red ribbon round her throat, incongruous and garish. When she saw Charlie she started, for she had expected the servant with a message from the notary. Her own message had been peremptory. "'I wish to see the notary,' she said defiantly. "'He is not able to come to you.' "'What of that?' "'Did you expect to go to his bedroom?' "'Why not?' She was abrupt to discourtesy. "'You are neither physician nor relative. I have important business.' "'I transact his business for him, madame.' you are a tailor. I learned that. I am learning to be a notary. My business is private. I transact his private business, too, that which his wife cannot do. Would you prefer his wife to me? It must be either the one or the other. The woman started towards the door in a rage. He stepped between. You cannot see the notary. I'll see his wife, then. That would only put the fat into fire. His wife would not listen to you. She is quick-tempered, and she fancies she has reasons for not liking you. She's a fool. I haven't been always particular, but as for Narcisse Dauphin... He has been a good friend to you at some expense, the world says. The woman struggled with herself. The world lies, she said at last. But he doesn't. The village was against you once. That was when the notary with the Seigneur was for you. It has cost him something ever since, I'm told you've never thanked him. He has tortured me for years, the oily, smirking, lying. He has been your best friend, he interrupted. Please sit down and listen to me for a moment. She hesitated, then did as he asked. He tells me that years ago he was in love with you. Hasn't he behaved better than some who said they loved you? The woman half started up, her eyes flashing, but met a deprecating motion of his hand and sat down again. He thought that if you knew your child lived, you would think better of life and of yourself. He has his good points, the notary. Why doesn't he tell me where my child is? The notary is in bed. You shot him. Don't you think it is doing you a good turn not to have you arrested? It was an accident. Oh, no, it wasn't. You couldn't make a jury believe that. And if you were in prison, how could you find your child?' You see, you have treated the notary very badly. 
She was silent, and he added slowly, "'He had good reasons for not telling you. It wasn't his own secret, and he hadn't come by it in a strictly professional way. Your child was being well cared for, and he told you simply that it was alive for your own sake. But he has changed his mind at last, and—' The woman sprang from her seat. "'He will tell me? He will tell me?' "'I will tell you.' monsieur monsieur ah my god but you are kind how should you know what do you know i give you my word that by to-morrow evening you shall know where your child is for a moment she was bewildered and overcome then a look of gratitude of luminous hope covered her face softening the hardness of its contour and she fell on her knees beside the table dropped her head in her arms and sobbed as if her heart would break my little lamb my little little lamb my own dearest she sobbed i shall have you again all my own he stood and watched her meditatively he was wondering why it was that grief like this had never touched him so before his eyes were moist though he had been many things in his life he had never been abashed but a curious timidity possessed him now he leaned over and touched her shoulder with a kindly abruptness a friendly awkwardness cheer up he said you shall have your child if dauphin can help you to it if he ever tries to take him from me she sprang to her feet her face in a fury i will for an instant her overpowering passion possessed her and she stood violent and wilful then under his fixed exacting gaze her rage ceased she became still and gray and quiet i shall know to-morrow evening monsieur where her voice was weak and distant. He thought for a time. At my house, at nine o'clock, he answered at last. Monsieur, she said in a choking voice, if I get my child again, I will bless you to my dying day. No, no, it will be Dauphin you must bless, he said, and opened the door for her. As she disappeared into the dusk and silence, he adjusted his eyeglass and stared musingly after her though there was nothing to see save the summer darkness, nothing to hear save the croak of the frogs in the village pond. He was thinking of the trial of Joseph Nadeau, and of a woman in the gallery who laughed. Monsieur, monsieur, called the voice of the notary from the bedroom. End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 The Curé and the Signor Visit the Tailor It had been a perfect September day. The tailor of Chaudier had been busier than usual, for winter was within hail, and careful habitants were renewing their simple wardrobes. The seigneur and the curé arrived together, each to order the making of a great coat of the Irish frieze, which the seigneur kept in quantity at the manor. The seigneur was in rare spirits, and not without reason, for this was Michaelmas Eve, and tomorrow would be Michaelmas Day and there was a promise to be redeemed on Michaelmas Day. He had high hopes of its redemption according to his own wishes, for he was a vain seigneur, and he had had his way in all things all his life, as everybody knew. Importunity with discretion was his motto, and he often vowed to the curé that there was no other motto for the modern world. The curé's visit to the tailor's shop on this particular day had unusual interest, for it concerned his dear ambition, the fondest aspiration of his life. To bring the infidel tailor, they could not but call the man an infidel whose soul was negative, the word agnostic had not then become usual, 
from the chains of captivity into the freedom of the church, and it was due to his patient confidence that there were several parishioners who now carried Charlie's name before the shrine of the Blessed Virgin and to the little calvaries by the roadside. The wife of Philin Lacasse never failed to pray for him every day. The thousand dollars gained by the saddler on the tailor's advice had made her life happier ever since, for Philian had become saving and prudent, and had even got her a hired girl. There were at least a half-dozen other women, including Madame Dauphin, who did the same. That he might listen again to the good priest on his holy hobby, inflamed with this passion of missionary zeal, the Signor this morning had thrown doubt upon the ultimate success of the curé's efforts. "'My dear curé,' said the Signor, "'it is true, I think, what the tailor suggested to my brother. On my soul I wonder the abbey gave in, for a more obstinate fellow I never knew. That man is born with the disbelieving maggot in his brain, or the butterfly of belief, or whatever it may be called. It's constitutional, may be criminal, but constitutional. It seems to me you would stand more chance with the Jew, Greek, or heretic than our infidel. He thinks too much for a tailor, or for nine tailors, or for one man. He pulled his nose as if he had said a very good thing indeed. They were walking slowly towards the village during this conversation, and the curé, stopping short, brought his stick emphatically down in his palm several times as he said, "'Ah, you will not see, you will not understand. With God all things are possible. Were it the devil himself in human form, I should work and pray and hope, as my duty is, though he should still remain the devil to the end. What am I? Nothing. But what the church has done, the church may do. Think of Paul and Augustine and Constantine.' They were classic barbarians to whom religion was but an emotion. This man has a brain which must be satisfied. I must count him as a soul to be saved through that very intelligence, as well as through the goodness of his daily life, which in its charity shames us all. He gives all he earns to the sick and needy. He lives unfair as poor as the poorest of our people eat. He gives up his hours of sleep to nurse the sick. Dauphin might not have lived but for him. His heart is good else these things were impossible. He could not act them. But that's just it, curé. Doesn't he act them? Isn't it a whim? What's more likely than that, tired of the flesh-pots of Egypt, he comes here to live in the desert for a sensation? We don't know. We do know. The man has had sorrow and the man has had sin. Yes, believe me, there is none of us that suffers as this man has suffered. I have had many, many talks with him, Believe me, Maurice, I speak the truth. My heart bleeds for him. I think I know the thing that drove him here amongst us. It is a great temptation which pursues him here, even here, where his life is so commendable. I have seen him fighting it. I have seen his torture, the piteous, ignoble yielding, and the struggle with more than mortal energy, to be master of himself. It is, the Signor said, then paused. No, no, do not ask me. He has not confessed to me, Maurice, naturally nothing like that. But I know, I know and pity, ah, Maurice, I almost love. You argue and reason, but I know this, my friend, that something was left out of this man when he was made, and it is that thing that we must find, or he will die among us a ruined soul, and his gravestone will be the monument of our shame. If he can once trust the church, if he can once say, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit, then his temptation will vanish, 
and I shall bring him in. I shall lead him home. For an instant the Seigneur looked at him in amazement, for this was a curé he had never known. "'Dear curé, you are not your old self,' he said gently. "'I am not myself. Yes, that is it, Maurice. I am not the old humdrum curé you knew. The whole world is my field now. I have sorrowed for sin within the bounds of this little chaudier. Now I sorrow for unbelief. Through this man, through much thinking on him, I have come to feel the woe of all the world. I have come to hear the footsteps of the master near. My friend, it is not a legend, not a belief now. It is a presence. I owe him much, Maurice. In bringing him home I shall understand what it all means, the faith that we profess. I shall in truth feel that it is all real. You see how much I may yet owe him, to this infidel tailor? I only hope I have not betrayed him he added anxiously. I would keep faith with him. Ah, yes, indeed. I only remember that you have said the man suffers. That is no betrayal. They entered the village in silence. Presently, however, the sound of Maximilian Coeur's violin, as they passed the bakery, set the Signor's tongue wagging again, and it wagged on till they came to the tailor's shop. Good day to you, Monsieur, he said as they entered. Have you a hot goose for me? I have, but I will not press it on you, replied Charlie. So, should you so take my question, eh? Should you so take my answer? The pun was new to the Seigneur, and he turned to the curé, chuckling. Think of that, curé. He knows the classics. He laughed till the tears came into his eyes. The next few moments Charlie was busy measuring the two potentates for greatcoats. As it was his first work for them, it was necessary for the curé to write down the Seigneur's measurements, as the tailor called them off, while the Seigneur did the same when the curé was being measured. So intent were the three it might have been a conference of war. The Seigneur ventured a distant but self-conscious smile when the measurement of his waist was called, for he had by two inches the advantage of the curé, though they were the same age, while he was one inch better in the chest. The Seigneur was proud of his figure and, on heeding the passing of fashions, held to the knee-breeches and silk stockings long after they had disappeared from the province. To the curé he had often said that the only time he ever felt heretical was when in the presence of the gaitered calves of a Protestant dean. He wore his sleeves tight and his stock high, as in the days when William the Sailor was king in England and his long gold-topped Prince Regent Kane was the very acme of dignity. The measurement done, the three studied the fashion plates, mostly five years old, as von Moltke and Bismarck might have studied the field of Gravelur. The Seigneur's remarks were highly critical till, with a few hasty strokes on brown paper, Charlie sketched in his figure with a long overcoat in style much the same as his undercoat, stately and flowing and confined at the waist. "'Admirable, most admirable,' said the Seigneur. "'The likeness is astonishing.' He admired the carriage of his own head in Charlie Swift lines, the garment in perfect taste. Form, there is nothing like form and proportion in life. It is almost a religion. My dear friend, said the curé in amazement, I know when I am in the presence of an artist and his work. Louis Trudel had rule and measure, shears and a needle. Our friend here has eye and head, sense of form and creative gift. Ah, curé, curé! If I were twenty-five with the assistance of Monsieur, I would show the bucks in Fabergé Street how to dress. What style is this called, Monsieur? 
he suddenly asked, pointing to the drawing. "'Style a la signal, signor,' said the tailor. The signor was flattered out of all reason. He looked across at the post-office, where he could see Rosalie dimly moving in the shade of the shop. "'Ah, if I had but ordered this coat sooner,' he said regretfully. He was thinking that to-morrow was Michaelmas Day, when he was to ask Rosalie for her answer again, and he fancied himself appearing before her in the gentle cool of the evening, in this coat lightly thrown back, disclosing his embroidered waistcoat, seals, and snowy linen. "'Monsieur, I am highly complimented, believe me,' he said. "'Observe, curé, that this coat is invented for me on the spot.' The curé nodded appreciatively. "'Wonderful, wonderful! But do you not think,' he added a little wistfully, for was he not a Frenchman, susceptible like all his race to the appearance of things? Do you not think it might be too fashionable for me?' "'Not a whit, not a whit,' replied the Seigneur generously. "'Should not a curé look distinguished, be dignified? Consider the length, the line, the eloquence of design. Ah, Monsieur, once again you are an artist. The curé shall wear it, indeed, but he shall. Then I shall look like him, and perhaps get credit for some of his perfections.' "'And the curé?' said Charlie. "'The curé? The curé? Tiens, a little of my worldliness will do him good.' there are no contrasts in him. He must wear the coat. He waved his walking-stick complacently, for he was thinking that the curé's less perfect figure would set off his own well as they walked together. May I have the honor to keep this as a souvenir, he added, picking up the sketch. With pleasure, answered Charlie. You do not need it? Not at all. The curé looked a little disappointed, and Charlie, seeing, immediately sketched on brown paper, the priestly figure in the new created coat a la Resignol. On this drawing he was a little longer engaged, with the result that the curé was reproduced with a singular fidelity in face, figure, and expression of personality, gentle yet important. "'On my soul you shall not have it,' said the Seigneur. "'But you shall have me, and I shall have you, lest we both grow vain by looking at ourselves.' He thrust the sketch of himself into the curé's hands, and carefully rolled up that of his friend. The curé was amazed at this gift of the tailor, and delighted with the picture of himself. His vanity was as that of a child, without guile or worldliness. He was better pleased, however, to have the drawing of his friend by him, that vanity might not be too companionable. He thanked Charlie with a beaming face, and then the two friends bowed and moved towards the door. Suddenly the curé stopped. "'My dear Maurice,' said he, "'we have forgotten the important thing.' "'Think of that, we two old babblers,' said the Seigneur. He nodded for the curé to begin. "'Monsieur,' said the curé to Charlie, "'you may be able to help us in a little difficulty. For a long time we have intended holding a great mission with a kind of religious drama like that performed at Oberammergau and called the Passion Play. You know of it, Monsieur?' "'Very well through reading, Monsieur.' Next Easter we propose having a passion play in pious imitation of the famous drama. We will hold it at the Indian reservation of Four Mountains, thus quickening our own souls and giving a good object lesson of the great history to the Indians. The curé paused rather anxiously, but Charlie did not speak. His eyes were fixed inquiringly on the curé, and he had a sudden suspicion that some devious means were forward to influence him. He dismissed the thought, however, for this curé was simple as man ever was made, 
straightforward as the most heretical layman might demand. The curé, taking heart, again continued, Now I possess an authentic description of the Oberammergau drama, giving details of its presentation at different periods, and also a book of the play. But there is no one in the parish who reads German, and it occurred to the Seigneur and myself that, understanding French so well, by chance you may understand German also, and would perhaps translate the work for us? I read German easily and speak it fairly, Charlie answered relieved, and you are welcome to my services. The curé's pale face flushed with pleasure. He took the little German book from his pocket and handed it over. It is not so very long, he said, and we shall all be grateful. Then an inspiration came to him, his eyes lighted. Monsieur, he said, you will notice that there are no illustrations in the book. It is possible that you might be able to make us a few drawings, if we do not ask too much. It would aid greatly in the matter of costume, and you might use my library. I have a fair number of histories. The curé was almost breathless, his heart thumped as he made the request. After a slight pause he added hastily, you are always doing for others. It is hardly kind to ask you. But we have some months to spare. There need be no haste. Charlie hastened to relieve the curé's anxiety. Do not apologize, he said. I will do what I can, when I can. But as for drawing, Monsieur, it will be but amateurish. Monsieur, interposed the Seigneur promptly, if you're not an artist, I'm damned. Maurice, murmured the curé reproachfully. Can't help it, curé. I've held it in for an hour. It had to come, so there it is exploded. I see no damage either, save to my own reputation. Monsieur, he added to Charlie, if I had gifts like yours, nothing would hold me. I should put on more airs than beauty steel. It was fortunate that at that instant Charlie's face was turned away, or the Seigneur would have seen it go white and startled. Charlie did not dare turn his head for the moment. He could not speak. What did the Seigneur know of beauty steel? To hide his momentary confusion, he went over to the drawer of a cupboard in the wall and placed the book inside. It gave him time to recover himself. When he turned round again his face was calm, his manner composed. "'And who, may I ask, is Beauty Steele?' he said. "'Faith, I do not know,' answered the Seigneur, taking a pinch of snuff. "'It's years since I first read the phrase in a letter a scamp of a relative of mine wrote me from the West. He had met a man of the name who had a reputation as a clever fop, a very handsome fellow. So I thought it a good phrase, and I've used it ever since on occasions. More airs than beauty steals. It has a sound, it's effective, I fancy, Monsieur. Decidedly effective, answered Charlie quietly. He picked up his shears. You will excuse me, he said grimly, but I must earn my living. I cannot live on my reputation. The Seigneur and the Curé lifted their hats to the tailor. Au revoir, Monsieur, they both said, and Charlie bowed them out. The two friends turned to each other a little way up the street. Something will come of this, Curé, said the Seigneur. The Curé, whose face had a look of happiness, pressed his arm in reply. Inside the tailor shop a voice kept saying, More airs than beauty steal. End of chapter 38 Chapter 39 The Scarlet Woman Since the evening in the garden when she had been drawn into Charlie's arms and then fled from them in joyful confusion, Rosalie had been in a dream. 
she had not closed her eyes all night, or if she closed them, they still saw beautiful things flashing by, to be succeeded by other beautiful things. It was a roseate world. To her simple nature it was not so important to be loved as to love. Selfishness was as yet the minor part of her. She had been giving all her life to her mother as a child, to sisters at the convent who had been kind to her, to the poor and the sick of the parish, to her father who was helpless without her, to the tailor across the way. In each case she had given more than she had got. A nature overflowing with impulsive affection, it must spend itself upon others. The maternal instinct was at the very core of her nature, and care for others was as much a habit as an instinct with her. She had loved to give, and it must be given. It had been poured like rain from heaven on the just and the unjust, on animals as on human beings, and in so far as her nature, in the first spring, the very April, of its powers could do. Till Charlie had come to Chaudier, it had all been the undisciplined ardor of a girl's nature. A change had begun in the moment when she had tearfully thrust the oil and flour in upon his excoriated breast. Later came real awakening, and a riotous outpouring of herself in sympathy, in observation, in a reckless kindness which must have done her harm but that her clear intelligence balanced her actions, and because secrecy in one thing helped to restrain her in all. Yet with all the fresh overflow of her spirit, which, assisted by her new position as postmistress, made her a conspicuous and popular figure in the parish, where officialdom had rare honor and little labor, she had prejudices almost unworthy of her, due though they were to radical antipathy. These prejudices, one against Joe Portugais and the other against Paulette Dubois, she had never been able entirely to overcome, though she had honestly tried. On the way to the hospital at Quebec, however, Joe had been so careful of her father, so respectful when speaking of Massou, so regardful of her own comfort, that her antagonism to him was lulled. But the strong prejudice against Paulette Dubois remained, casting a shadow on her bright spirit. All this day she moved about in a mellow dream, very busy, scarcely thinking. New feelings dominated her, and she was too primitive to analyze them and too occupied with them to realize acutely the life about her. Work was an abstraction, resting rather than tiring her. Many times she had looked across at the tailor shop, only seeing Charlie once. She did not wish to speak with him now, nor to be near him yet. She wanted this day for herself only. So it was that, soon after the curé and the seigneur had bade good-bye to Charlie, she left the post-office and went quickly through the village to a spot by the river, where was a place called the Rest of the Flax-Beaters. It was an overhanging rock which made a kind of canopy over a sweet spring, where, in the days when their labors sounded through the valley, the flax-beaters from the level below came to eat their meals and to rest. This had always been a resort for her in the months when the flax-beaters did not use it. Since a child she had made the place her own. To this day it is called Rosalie's Dell, for are not her sorrows and joys still told by those who knew and loved her, and is not the parish still fragrant with her name? Has not her history become a living legend a thousand times told? Leaving the village behind her, Rosalie passed down the high road 
till she came to a path that led off through a grove of scattered pines. There would be yet a half-hour's sun, and then a short twilight, and the river and the woods and the rest of the flax-beaters would be her own, and she could think of the wonderful thing come upon her. She had brought with her a book of English poems, and as she went through the grove she opened it, and in her pretty English repeated over and over to herself. My heart is thine, and soul and body render, faith to thy faith, I give nor hold in thrall. Take all, dear love, thou art my life's defender. Speak to my soul, take life and love, take all. She was lifted up by abandonment of the verse, by the fullness of her own feelings which had only needed a touch of beauty to give it exultation. The touch had come. She went on abstractedly to the place where she had triced it with her thoughts only these many years, and, sitting down, watched the sun sink beyond the trees, the shades of evening fall. All that had happened since Charlie came to the parish she went over in her mind. She remembered the day he had said this, the day he had said that. She brought back the night it was etched upon her mind when he had said to her, "'You have saved my life, mademoiselle.' She recalled the time she put the little cross back on the church door, the ghostly footsteps in the church, the light, the lost hood. A shudder ran through her now, for the mystery of that hood had never been cleared up. But the words on the page caught her eye again. My heart is thine, and soul and body render, faith to thy faith. It swallowed up the moment's agitation. Never till this day, never till last night had she dared to say to herself he loves me he seemed so far above her she never had thought of him as a tailor that she had given and never dared hope receive had lived without anticipation lest there should come despair even that day at vadrome mountain she had not thought he meant love when he had said to her that he would remember to the last when he had said that he would die for love's sake he had not meant her but others, someone else whom he would save by his death. Kathleen, that name which haunted her, ah, whoever Kathleen was, or whatever Kathleen had to do with him or his life, she had no reason to fear Kathleen now. She had no reason to fear anyone, for had she not heard his words of love as he clasped her in his arms last night? Had she not fled from that enfolding because her heart was so full in the hour of her triumph that she could not bear more, could not look longer into the eyes to which she had told her love before his was spoken? In the midst of her thoughts she heard footsteps. She started up. Paulette Dubois suddenly appeared in the path below. She had taken the river path down from Vadrome Mountain, where she had gone to see Joe Portugais, who had not yet returned from Quebec. Paulette's face was agitated, her manner nervous. For nights she had not slept and her approaching meeting with the tailor had made her tremble all day. Excited as she was, there was a wild sort of beauty in her face, and her figure was lithe and supple. She dressed always a little garishly, but now there was only that band of color round the throat worn last night in the talk with Charlie. To both women this meeting was as a personal misfortune, a mutual affront. Each had a natural antipathy. To Rosalie the invasion of her beloved retreat was as hateful as though the woman had purposely intruded. For a moment they confronted each other without speaking. 
Then Rosalie's natural courtesy, her instinctive good-heartedness, overcame her irritation, and she said quietly, "'Good evening, madame.' "'I am not, madame, and you know it,' answered the woman harshly. "'I am sorry. Good evening, mademoiselle,' rejoined Rosalie evilly. "'You wanted to insult me. You knew I wasn't madame.' Rosalie shook her head. "'How should I know? You have not always lived in Chaudiere. You have lived in Montreal.' and people often call you madame. You know better. You know that letters come to me from Montreal addressed mademoiselle. Rosalie turned as if to go. I do not recall what letters passed through the post office. I have a good memory for forgetting. Good evening, she added, with an excess of courtesy. Paulette read the placid scorn in the girl's face. She did not see and would not understand that Rosalie did not scorn her for what she had ever done, but for something that she was. "'You think I am the dirt under your feet,' she said, now white, now red, and mad with anger. "'I'm not fit to speak with you. I'm a rag for the dust-pile.' "'I have never thought so,' answered Rosalie. "'I have not liked you, but I am sorry for you, and I never thought those things.' "'You lie,' was the rejoinder. And Rosalie, turning away quickly with trouble in her face, put her hands to her ears, and hastening down the hillside, did not hear the words the woman called after her. "'Tomorrow everyone shall know you are a thief. Run, run, run. You can hear what I say, white face. They shall know about the little cross tomorrow.' She followed Rosalie at a distance, her eyes blazing. As fate would have it, she met on the high road the least scrupulous man in the parish, an inveterate gossip, the keeper of the general store, whose only opposition in business was the post-office shop. He was the center of the village tittle-tattle, and worse. With malicious speed Paulette told him how she had seen Rosalie Evanturel nailing the little cross on the church door of a certain night. If he wanted proof of what she said, let him ask Joe Portugay. Having spat out her revenge, she went on to the village and threw it to her house, where she prepared to visit the shop of the tailor. Her sense of retaliation satisfied, Rosalie passed from her mind her child only occupied it. In another hour she would know where her child was, the tailor had promised that she should. Then perhaps she would be sorry for the accident to the notary, for it was an accident, in spite of appearances. It was dark when Paulette entered the door of the tailor's house. When she came out a half-hour later, with elation in her carriage and tears of joy running down her face, she did not look about her, she did not care whether or not anyone saw her. She was possessed with only one thought, her child. She passed like a swift wind down the street, making for home and for her departure to the hiding-place of her child. She had not seen a figure in the shadow of a tree nearby as she came from the tailor's door. She had not heard a smothered cry behind her. She was not aware that in unspeakable agony Another woman knocked softly at the door of the tailor's house, and, not waiting for an answer, opened it and entered. It was Rosalie de Vanturel. End of chapter 39 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks.com